I want to speak to you tonight on the subject of baptism. That may seem like a very academic subject, particularly given what we've enjoyed so far, but I think, I think God might have something worked up in this thing that'll get us going. I'll preach to that end. We're going to baptize a young lady tonight, and we're actually going to have several baptisms over the next, couple of, next few weeks. And I'm very thankful for that. The two ordinances of the local church are the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, what defines an ordinance? It's a couple of things. First of all, it's something that is explicitly commanded in Scripture that we do. We are commanded to baptize, and we are commanded to observe the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus doesn't give specifics as far as how frequently we're to observe the Lord's Supper, but we are to observe it. Another thing that's a hallmark of an ordinance is it pictures some aspect of redemption. The Lord's Supper pictures his suffering as he died. Baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The third thing is there is evidence of its continued use in the early church. And we see that certainly with baptism and what is often called breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. I want to speak to you tonight on baptism. You would think in a Baptist church, this would be a bit superfluous, but it amazes me how many people don't understand what the Bible actually teaches about baptism. Um, I've had several conversations just recently with people about baptism, why we do it, how we do it, and so forth. And I thought it would be helpful to us tonight as we're going to stir the waters, that we talk about what's happening tonight and will continue to happen till the Lord comes back. So Acts chapter 2, verse 41, let's just focus on that one verse. Peter has preached the great message at Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. We talked about that message this morning and how we all have a message. But let's look at the results. Verse number 41, then they that gladly received his word were what? Baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Um, this isn't the thrust of the message, but I want you to notice the order. Salvation, baptism, added to the church. We believe that that order is on purpose and that that order is a pattern for us to follow. If you would be a church member, particularly in a Baptist church like this one, saved, baptized, and you become a church member. And we do believe that those are three distinct, different happenings. And we'll get into that more in a minute. So, baptism. I'm going to be giving you a lot of scriptures. This is not, usually I try to stay expository. This is not going to be an expository message. For those that appreciate expository messages like I do, I hope I don't offend you tonight. But this is thoroughly topical. And there's a place for that sometimes. Let's begin, first of all, with the what, or we could say the why of baptism. The what or the why of baptism. Let, let me begin by telling you what baptism is not, what it is not. If you don't know this word already, I'm about to teach you an awesome word. I love this word. Number one, baptism is not salvific. S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C. I'm sorry, I did that wrong. Yeah, that's right. S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C. Salvific. Now, what does that 
$9 word mean? It means it has nothing to do with salvation. No element of baptism imparts grace on anyone. It is not part of the salvation process. There's nothing about it that gets anybody any closer to going to heaven. If you go into the baptismal waters lost, you come out lost and wet. It's not salvific. Now, there are some that have tried to ascribe baptism as being a part of the salvation experience. They are wrong. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, and baptism would certainly be a work. Not of works, lest any man should boast. In Romans, Paul talks about how if you add works to grace, it's no more grace. Titus chapter 3. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, which would include baptism. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Some people mistakenly believe that Baptists believe that you get saved by baptism. If you're a real doctrinal Baptist, that thought is horrifying to you. A verse that, that if, as if these didn't, a verse that nails it down with me is 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul speaking, he said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul makes a clear distinction between baptism and the gospel by which we're saved. So baptism is not salvific. This little girl that's getting in this water tonight has already given testimony of her salvation. As she sits wherever she is tonight, she is saved right now. If she never gets in that water, she's still saved. Because baptism doesn't save anybody. Number two, now this one may get me in trouble. Baptism is not exclusive to Baptists. I have been at odds with some of my brethren in other churches, because, you know, independent Baptists sometimes can be pretty non-independent. And they'll get sore at you if you don't believe exactly like they do. But there are church groups, denominations, if you want to call them that, or non-denominational for that matter, that have the right understanding in Scripture of salvation and then baptism by immersion. Assembly of God comes to mind. Non-denominational churches that are Baptistic come to mind. Um, Nazarene, I think, I think Nazarene's baptized by immersion. I'm not sure on that. So if Brother Davies comes to this church from a non-denominational church and, and, and he was saved in that church and he was baptized by immersion in that church after his salvation, I'm not going to rebaptize him. Because the Bible doesn't say that you have to be a Baptist. It says you have to be baptized to remember the church. Now, some of my brethren say, oh, no, they've got, to be ba- they've got to be baptized by an independent Baptist that's wearing a white shirt and no beard. <laughs> if 
Fine. Everybody, let's all get in it tonight. Let's just all get it taken care of. It's good and warm. It's not... Listen, I'm a Baptist by conviction, and I'm thankful for that. But we do not have a monopoly, a corner on the Bible. We've got to be real careful that we don't elevate our, our denomination or whatever you want to call it over, honest to goodness, biblical Christianity. See? I'll tell you what else it's not. In my view from Scripture, it's not automatic church membership. Now, this one's debatable, but I believe in Acts 2, 41, that there is a distinct difference. They gladly received his word, they got saved, they were baptized, and the same day, which implies a time lapse, were added unto the church. Now, there are some pastors, and I don't take issue with them, but if you go in the waters, you're automatically a member. That, to me, seems maybe not so smart, because you immediately endue them with all the privileges of membership without any of the discipleship. Their vote counts as much as yours. And I think maybe we need to ask God for wisdom in that matter. I don't believe it's automatic church membership, but it is necessary for church membership. If you would be a member of this or another Baptistic church, you have to have been baptized. And sometimes we can almost get apologetic about that. Well, I mean, I know some people don't believe this, but if you want to be here, you all shucks, you got to get baptized. No, the Bible teaches it, and if the Bible teaches it, then I need to trumpet it. If this is what God wants, then that should be what I want. See, So baptism is not salvific. It's not exclusive to Baptists. And it's not automatic church membership. But I'll tell you what it is. It is, first of all, a public profession of one's faith. It's the best way that the Bible gives for you to make sure that anybody who wants to know knows that you're a child of God, a part of the, of the body of Christ. I'm a Christian, and I don't care who knows it. The best analogy that I know is a wedding band. This is my wedding band. Thankfully, it's easy to get off tonight. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes I swell up because I eat too much salt. This is nothing but a symbol, a bit of an expensive symbol, but a symbol. I've not yet moved over to the silicone bands. My wife still makes me wear a golden one. I feel bad for her. She bought my wedding band. I bought hers. Her finger's a good bit smaller than mine. I got more gold than she got. Of course, I had to buy the engagement ring, but anyway. This band is meant to be a symbol. To anybody who sees me, and this comes in handy, because when I go out in public, I get looked at a lot, as you can imagine. Good-looking man like me. But any lady that looks my way and gets over the initial shock sees this. And what does this say? I'm taken. I'm spoken for. I'm sorry to report to you, this, this wedding band is not as clear an indicator of a marriage relationship as it used to be. It used to be if you saw a wedding band on somebody, you could be sure that, well, anyway. If I take this wedding band off, I'm still married. 
When I was a kid, I used to take my dad's wedding band and put it on my finger. That didn't mean I was married. Baptism's the same way. If you're not baptized, you're still saved. And if you get baptized without being saved, it doesn't make you saved. All it is is a symbol. It's a public profession, a picture of what took place on the inside at some time before. So what's going to happen tonight is a picture, an important picture, but a picture. It's a public profession of one's faith. It's also the first step of obedience for a Christian. When you get saved, the very first opportunity for obedience is baptism. And I think that, that, and I'm guilty of this too, that sometimes we're not as diligent as we ought to be about putting that before a new convert. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And when they heard this, Peter's message, they were pricked in their heart. That's, that's, that's a conviction. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized for the remission of sins. I'm sorry, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, if you were here this morning, you, you heard this quick explanation. That verse is not saying you have to be baptized to get remission of sins. It means you are baptized because of your remission of sins. The remission of sins has already happened when you get saved. But what's your first, what does Peter say? The first thing you should do is once you're saved, once your sins have been remitted, once they've been paid for, the very first thing is be baptized. And we see that all through the, uh, the, uh, the, the book of Acts, we see people getting saved and getting baptized, getting saved and getting baptized. So the what or the why of baptism? It's not salvific. It's not exclusive to Baptists. It's not necessarily automatic church membership. What it is is a public profession of one's faith and the first step of obedience for a Christian. That's the what and the why of baptism. But then number two, the how of baptism. There are several methods that people say are baptism. I say this lovingly. I'm not trying to be unkind, but by my understanding, only one of them is scriptural. Now, that doesn't mean that people that do otherwise don't love the Lord or aren't trying to live for him, but if we look at the scripture and what it says and what it teaches, there's only one scriptural form of baptism. It's not sprinkling. It's not pouring. It's immersion. I thought I'd get more of an amen in a Baptist church than that. Y'all bunch of sprinklers. Now, when, when my father joined the church that I grew up in, we started out Salvation Army. Salvation Army is Methodist in doctrine, and Methodists sprinkle. There's some good Methodists out there that love the Lord. And I, I listen, I, absolutely. But they sprinkle. Okay. Then pouring. Pouring gets a little closer. They get this little cup, and they, they pour it over the head, so it's a little more water. I saw one video, it looked like it was some kind of an Orthodox church out in Eastern Europe, and they took that poor baby and they just, and I'm like, what in the world? What parent lets a priest do that to their kid? It scared daylights out of me. Man, alive. So here's the question. Baptist and Baptistic Christians, why are we so boorish on immersion? Why is it such a why is it such a big deal? Why won't we shut up about it? Can I give you three reasons? Number one is semantics. The word baptize matters. 
Did you know that every time the word baptize is used in the scripture, it always means the same thing? It has no alternate meanings. Baptize always means at its root to dip or to immerse, to submerge every time. Well, you know, it could mean, no, it can't. It only means dip, immerse, submerge. So that right there tells me this is important. Another reason that I, I truly believe this is the setting, not just the semantics, but the setting. Think of the times that we see baptism described in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's always in a place that involves enough water to go down into. Acts chapter 8, verse 38. The Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch commanded the chariot to stand still, and they, him and Philip, went both down into the water. Respectfully, if you're going to baptize using sprinkling or pouring, you don't need to get down into the water. All you need is a cup. Seems to me to be overkill to get down into the water. They both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, they went down into the water, they came back out of the water. Does that sound like sprinkling, pouring, or immersion? Sounds to me like immersion. Oh, let's get one that's, that's even more recognizable. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Went up straightway out of the water. Let's backtrack grammatically. If he went up straightway out of the water, he must have first gone straightway down into the water. Kids, that's why grammar is important in school. What comes out has to have gone in at some point. I mean, let's be honest. Do any of y'all picture John the Baptist in the wilderness? Repent and be baptized. No. So the semantics tell me that it's immersion. The setting tells me that it's immersion. But then number three, that's the only thing that pictures my Savior. Only immersion pictures what our Savior did for us. Brother Davies, when I got saved, he didn't just take the Holy Spirit and... No. I got baptized into the Holy Spirit. So much so that he lives in me now. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, also in the li- be, be, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. When you baptize somebody, you baptize them the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Immersion's the only thing that pictures that.
So we have the, the what and the why of baptism, the how of baptism. How about the who of baptism? Do I believe that everybody in this room should be baptized? No. No. Not everybody is currently a candidate for baptism for two reasons. One, perhaps they knowingly are not saved. And if they get baptized unsaved, it does them no good. Number two, they're not yet at a point where they can be saved. Safe, yes. But they're not at a point of accountability where they can make a decision for Christ Who is a candidate for baptism? Anyone who has trusted Christ as their Savior. And if they trusted Christ as their Savior, then that would imply that they have gotten to a point of accountability in their life where they can make a decision to be baptized following in obedience, just like they made a decision to receive Christ as their Savior. I say this lovingly. There is no biblical evidence or call for babies or non-believers to be baptized. There's just not. Now, let me get back to the Presbyterians. I talked about them this morning. I have friends that are Presbyterians. They love the Lord. And they believe with all of their heart that they're following his word. And many of them practice what's called pedo-baptism or infant baptism. Because they believe what they're doing is sealing those children as part of the elect for their future salvation. I don't doubt their sincerity, but I don't see anything in the scriptures to support it. Nothing. Nothing. And there's some people that they're relying on the fact that mom and dad sprinkled them when they were little babies to get them into heaven. That's not a, you know, I've got to believe there's something to this thing when my forefathers were willing to be burned at the stake over it. Back to Acts chapter 8. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him the Ethian eunuch, Jesus And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Notice that Philip doesn't say, you're right. Let's get down in there and do it. No, he says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. There's a criteria that has to be met. And until you give testimony that you have trusted Christ as your Savior, Mr. Ethiopian, you may not be baptized. And so when somebody comes to me for baptism, the very first question that I I ask them is, has there been a time that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and are you relying on him alone to get to heaven? And if they cannot answer that question to my satisfaction, I dare not baptize them. It's amazing. There's a stern warning. We're scared to death to have somebody unsaved come to the Lord's table, but we're not very careful about putting unsaved people in the Lord's water. And I wonder how many people are walking around with a false assurance of their salvation because they got wet at some point. The what, why of baptism, the how of baptism, the who of baptism. And this, this is where we, we're going we're to get preachy. I mean, it hadn't yet. Not yet. You'll recognize this one. So what of baptism? All right, Andy. I heard everything you got to say about it. But is baptism really that important? Because right now, there's a lot of well-meaning churches out there that they've de-emphasized baptism. 
to the point that it doesn't really even come up anymore. Is it really that important? And my answer can only be an unqualified, resounding, yes, it is that important. Why? Well, anything that's one-third of the Great Commission is pretty important, isn't it? Oh, the Great Commission is getting people saved. Nope. The Great Commission is salvation, baptism into a local church, and discipleship. That's the Great Commission. And we got a whole lot of churches out there that they put all their efforts into winning people to Christ, and that's great. That's the most important thing. But then they don't baptize them, or if they do, they don't disciple them, and these people die on the vine. Then we got other people, they put all kinds of effort into discipleship, and they're discipling people that never got saved in the first place. Seems to me the best thing to do is the Bible way. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, give them the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded thee. That's salvation, baptism, discipleship. So if something's one-third of the Great Commission, it's pretty important, isn't it? I'll tell you what else it is. While it is not salvation, it is an anchor point that you can look to regarding your salvation. My memories of my being saved are a little bit fuzzy. I have vague memories of when I got saved at four years old. The memories get a little bit sharper of when I went forward during a chapel service in my Christian school at 10 years old and got assurance of my salvation. But let me tell you what my memories are real sharp about. Going underwater. Now, did that have anything to do with my salvation? No. But when I think about getting saved, I look at the progression and I go backwards from my baptism. It's an anchor point. I'll tell you what I remember. I remember it was at Calvary Baptist Church in Colonial Heights, Virginia, where we're going with our teenagers. It was in their old auditorium, which is now their nursery complex. Yeah, it's a big church. The old auditorium, about the size of this one, is now their nursery complex. And what's, what's interesting is their baptistry was similar to this one, and it's still there. It's behind a wall now, but it's still there. And I can stand in that classroom, and I can look up at the ceiling and say, that's where I got baptized. Here's what I remember. I remember my dad got baptized too. Because again, he hadn't been by immersion. And my dad, being the brave soul, the intrepid soul, made me go before him. But thankfully, it was ladies first, and a young lady went before me. So I'm sitting there on the steps, ready to go down into the water, and they bring the girl in in first. And when she steps into the water, her eyes got this big. I was like, what's wrong with her? I don't know if I want to do this. I found out when I went in, that water was about negative eight degrees. All, all you people that brag like you're a better Christian. Yeah, I got, I got baptized in a creek. Well, whoop-de-doo. I got baptized in a church baptistry was negative eight degrees. I'd have rather been in a creek. Pharisees. And I got in that water, and I was 10 years old, and that water came up to here on me. And when you don't have time to adjust, and that water's up to here, and it's negative eight degrees, what happens? 
couldn't get my breath. And of course, people out in the out in the oh bless his heart, he's emotional. I'm not emotional. I can't breathe. And then the pastor makes me speak. You want to give your testimony? No. Have you been saved? Yes. And if you don't get this over with, I'm about to go to him right now. And when he baptized me, I came out of that water. By the way, to the young lady being baptized tonight, you have nothing to worry about. It is warm as it can be back there. The thermometer says 100 degrees on the dot. Bring a loofah. I remember it. And so when I struggle a little bit with what I can't remember about my salvation, it helps me to think, well, I got baptized for some reason. It's, a, it's an anchor point. It's an anchor point. I'll tell you what, why else it's important. It demonstrates a willingness to obey at the very first. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not meaning to hurt anybody's feelings, but it's a question that needs to be asked. If when you get saved and you're taught that your first step is baptism, if you're not willing to obey at that first step, what is the likelihood that you're going to obey him much moving forward? And we can come up with all kinds of reasons not to get baptized. And listen, I get it. Some people are deathly afraid of water. Preacher, can, can we do it without water? No. It's kind of a big part of it. Preacher, I don't want to be up in front of people. Can we do it in private? Sorry. It's an ordinance of the local church, which means we have to let the local church be there. I can't come to your house and get you in the hot tub. Here's, here's a common one. What if I can't live up to it? Can I go ahead and help you with that one? You can't. You can't. But thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to live up to it. He lives up to it for you. And he'll empower you. You see, obedience better than anything else demonstrates your love for Christ. You tell me that you love Jesus, all I need to see is your obedience to his word. What did Jesus say? John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And if you're not willing to obey the first one, what are the odds you're going to obey many of the next ones? I'll tell you what else it does. Is it that important? Yeah, it's one-third of the Great Commission. It's an anchor point to the decision of salvation. It demonstrates a willingness to obey at the first. But you know what else? It produces joy that you're going to need as you move forward as a Christian. Obedience produces joy, and you're going to need it. We look at the Ethiopian eunuch again, verse 39 of Acts chapter 8. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. It was like a mini rapture. God just took him out of the picture. Just whoosh. Now, that's not going to happen tonight. 
When we baptize Gracie, I'm not going to disappear. But look what the Ethiopian eunuch did. The eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. He was so full of joy, it didn't even bother him that Philip disappeared. I don't know about you, but if I come up out of the water and somebody disappears, ah! but he was so enraptured by the joy of obedience that what happened around him didn't bother it. You know what I found on those times that I've been obedient to the Lord? He gives me joy. And more often than not, what happens around me doesn't bother me. Now, what do we do with this? Andy, well, if you're here tonight and you're saved, and you know you're saved, but you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, I'm not trying to pressure you, but I am. Because it's my job to tell you, you ought to obey the Lord. And maybe, maybe that's what's held back more blessings in your life because you haven't gotten this taken care of. Now, there's one, there's one instance that I maybe, maybe, maybe would counsel you not to. There is the possibility that somebody could get saved and have some kind of a medical condition in which baptism would put their life at great risk. And I suppose there's an argument to be made that the Lord would not ask. It's kind of like fasting. If you have dietary needs, that if you don't eat a certain amount at a certain time, it can, it can kill you. There's other ways to fast. I suppose there's something to be said for that, though my more um, legalistic brethren would say, I'll risk it anyway. But uh, I suppose there's an argument to be made. That is the only thing that I could see as a possibility. But Andy, I'm afraid... I got news for you. There's going to be times in the Christian life you're going to be afraid. You've got to obey anyway. Yeah. Part of living for God is overcoming fear. It's always right to obey Him. So if, you're, if you've been saved and you've never trusted Christ, you've never been baptized, rather, let's set it up. That... That baptistry can be filled and heated in about three hours. So on a Sunday morning, God speaks to your heart about it, you can get baptized Sunday night. Wednesday afternoon, God's been working on you, I'll baptize you on a Wednesday. I'm one of those Baptists. I will baptize on Wednesday nights. You need to follow the Lord in obedience in your public profession of faith. More broadly than that, well, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Been baptized. So this, this, I'm good with this then, right? Nope. Because now what the Holy Spirit wants you to do is look and see, is there any other area of life in, you, in which you're not being obedient? What's your next step? Because what's, what's the Great Commission? Saved, baptized, and by implication, into a local church and discipled in that local church. So maybe... Maybe it's time to just pull the trigger and join a church. 
That's one that I, I am really patient with, and, and, and I'm not asking anybody to go against what you believe the Lord would have you to do. But if, if this is just a matter of how I get around to it one day, get over that thinking and start seeking the Lord's face. Where do you want me and when do you want me there? Maybe it's a matter of service. Maybe it's a matter of your calling. I'm saved and baptized, joined the church, but I tell you, the Lord's been worrying me to death over what he wants me to do with my life. And I've not been willing to surrender to it. It's time to be obedient. That's your next step. That's your next step. I need to be more of a witness. That's your next step. I need to give better than what I do. That's your next step. I need to be more faithful to the house of God. That's your next step. Whatever he's speaking to you about tonight in being obedient, that's your next step. Obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So tonight, Gracie, who's been saved, she's given me testimony of that. I'm satisfied that she is. She's going to be baptized. Young. Now, I will say this. Sometimes when a child is really young, I will purposely put a little bit of time between their salvation and their baptism so they don't connect them. And that's on me. That's not on them. That's on me. But what a thrill it is when a child gets saved young. Gets baptized young. Starts living for the Lord young. Man, don't you love those stories of people got saved out of the pits, dark pits of sin? I love them too. But I love, you know what I love more? God kept me from all that mess. And I don't have the scars that my daddy has. See, that's what I want for my children. I don't want my children to have the scars that I have. I don't want them to have the regrets that I have. I don't want them to have to sidestep bad decisions like I do sometimes. I want them to be saved early and baptized and serving God right from the get-go. So that's exciting. That's exciting. So that's your so what, y'all. This is an awesome thing. It's something to be happy about. I love it when the waters get stirred. This is what it's all about.